Hello, uh, Helen and Harville. Hello. Glad to meet you. Glad to see you again. <laughs> so, uh, as people who have paid a lot of attention to what happens between couples, um, you have really been very interested in what happens in the space between. Yes. Right, right. We um, are aware that a lot of people are longing to be in relationship. In fact, I think I heard you once say, we're relational beings. Everyone is longing for a relationship. So a first question is, well, what's the definition of relationship? Most people would say a relationship is two people with some history and how they interact. It can be a good relationship, bad relationship, but it depends on the two people and how they you know, their history and their memories. And, and and we take pains to say that a relationship isn't just the two people. A relationship is two people and the space between them. And it's how two people steward the space between them that determines whether they have a, a successful relationship or not. It's not Harville's mental health or my mental health or my need to go for therapy, which Harville wishes I would do sometime, or <laughs> his need to go on a spiritual retreat so that you'd be better in our relationship, which I wish that yeah, you would fix yourself and come back and be, then you could be better in, in our relationship. No, if two people will just turn to each other and know that there's a, a, a space between them, that's what will determine the quality of relationship. So what people go, so when we say that, people go, what do you mean? It's empty. Like there's ain't, there ain't nothing there. Why is this the important thing? Well, the space between is replete with energy fields, just like the space between the planet Earth and the moons, uh, the moon revolving around the Earth and the planet Earth revolving around the sun and the all the planets and stars in the galaxies, all of them are held up by space. It looks invisible to us, but it's replete with gravitational pulls, feels, just all sorts of dark matter, all sorts of things. And um, that's that's true of the space between two people. Mm-hmm. And, um, Harville in particular has worked out a specific formula for handling the space between well, but mainly, and I'll say one more thing and then turn it back over to you um, or Harville, but this space is what Martin Buber says, it's where God shows up. When two people learn to honor and respect each other, he says the universal energies of love begin to flow through the two people and begin to reside in the space between. Mm-hmm. That's what gave us the idea to begin ex- to begin to explore this concept. When we become servant to each other, that's when God shows up, and that's a part of now amago therapy. Uh, but the space between Paul Tillich, you know, a vac- God is a vacuum, uh, a void. Um, the Jewish tradition. You can't even speak the word of God. If once you speak God, you know, Yahweh, you it, it doesn't 
to spell it, it doesn't have any vowels because it's not okay to speak the word. Once you mm-hmm. predicate it, you reduce it to a word, which means a thing. Like God is not a thing. God is a spiritual essence. Mm-hmm. And so we think that um, that stu- studying relationship it's a psychological process, but also a very spiritual process. Yeah, yeah. And love, you know, where does love come from after all? No one has ever answered that question. Mm-hmm. Where does love reside in the universe? We don't know where its origin, but we know it can show up when two people come together in a healthy relationship. Yeah, yeah. And so I love, Helen, that, that, that way of introducing things. Um, because um, here you are visually, I see the two of you next to each other, and uh, and then, you know, in a way, there's a nothing in between. But if we only saw what is visible, uh, it would be like just seeing the sun and the and and the, and the earth, and you would be missing out on the forces that hold them together. The gravity that mean that creates the rotation. Essentially, we would not be understanding the universe if we were not paying attention to that invisible force field that is in between. Yes. And so I really like the idea that what you're setting up is to say, if you just focus on the two people, you're missing out on actually what makes it work or not work as a system, and that you need to address that uh, if you want to act on what's happening. Exactly. Yes. And, and in apropos of the universe, um, the, the new, uh, I think it's probably a decade, uh, old now, the discovery that this conversation about dark matter and dark energy, uh, and the statement that only, uh, 4% of the universe is, is visible, uh, is material. That the rest of it is, or 96% of the universe is, is, uh, invisible and is, uh, but, but holds the 4%. And mm-hmm. 4% arises out of that and it holds that. So it's like you were saying, if you only pay attention to the 4% of the universe, you don't get it that the universe also consists of the invisible. And yes. that's the exact, um, analogy. In fact, it may not be an analogy. It may be a parallel statement about relationship itself that the least important, (laughs) I've never said this before, but the least important thing here may be Helen and me. Um, And the most important thing is the space that out of which uh, Helen and I, in which and out of which we live. Um, And that that this is what, uh, how we manage this, determines what we experience uh, inside, what becomes our subjective experience and what becomes our memories. And so that the space between actually gives birth to subjectivity. Not subjectivity doesn't give birth to the relationship. The relationship defined as the space between uh, populates uh, subjectivity with the contents of memory. And so, therefore, what happens here determines the quality of memory, and memory determines how you feel and think and what you do. Uh, and if you and and in fact, we have gone far enough in the in the system to say 
that you can change very little in yourself if you only work with subjectivity, if you only work with memory, that what really changes you is to the interaction with the outside, which is the domain of the space between, because there you engage in uh, the other, in the not-self, and then that engagement becomes another memory, and that's what changes the inside, is what comes to the inside from the outside. And so the therapy is not so much an exploration of subjectivity as it is an exploration of the construction of and modification of subjectivity through how we relate to what is not subjected. To mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In some sense, the, the space between is objective. It is outside. It is real. Mm-hmm. And other people here who, you know, there's Mary and your child and, your, and the corner grocery man, there's the space between all of them and the how we interact uh, in our relationship determines what in what in new interior furniture we get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you just go around and examine the furniture, you don't change. You just accept your knowledge about how much furniture you have. But it doesn't change your relationship to the furniture. You have to have a new experience to reconfigure the interior world for you to actually change. Right, so the space right. between is the generative source. Yeah, yeah. So that's a, the space between is the is the space in which uh, interaction happens. Yes. And interaction is a source of experience, uh, yeah. which is how you uh, refashion your understanding of the world, but yes. which is only useful as you have a chance to apply it uh, and to make it, uh, to, to act it out as opposed to simply conceptualizing it. Right, to act it out. And that this is a, this is a continuous process. Every yeah. time Helen and I interact, even as we're interacting now and interacting with you, we are creating new interiorities. So um, I'm, no, I'm noticing the, the, the hand movement. And, you know, I want to, to, to highlight it. You know that hand movement that has that quality, like the 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 loop, the infinite, like the infinity sign. You know, but the the loop going on, because yeah. in some way, as you mention it in this context, it is like a representation of the space between. You yes. know, in the sense that it has, you know, the the back and forth movement has that representation of connection. Yes. And uh, and ongoing. Go ahead. And what often happens in a relationship is. You're attracted and you may start a relationship and then you think, Oh my goodness, they're so different from me. You know, I, I like to keep things calm and focused. My partner's just all over the place. Like they're so loud or, or spontaneous or, you know, and then, you know, and, and we, we call the, so, um, so we, we, we actually have names for these two kinds of people in our system we call the contained person the turtle and the expressive one the hailstorm mm-hmm. and uh, my point is that every couple can self-diagnose when a problem arises in their relationship one of them goes inward to process it and the other is very they need to talk about it they need to express their emotions and 
<clears throat> they can learn to be really compatible, even though they're they're different. But it's sort of like the particle wave duality. And and what happens is two people in their relationship often there's the romance period, but after a while there's a bit of disillusionment, and the, the flow doesn't happen. Uh, one person starts just going, "Oh my goodness, I think my partner isn't as wonderful as I thought," and so they they focus sort of like just mm-hmm. becoming two little circles spinning sep- you know, beside each other. But once they turn around um, and begin to uh, begin to understand that um, it's supposed to be that way, a- every particle is attracted to a wave. Every wave is attracted to a particle, <laughs> and they learn to be safe with each other. Then the flow happens. Mm-hmm. And we have a statement. Harville came up with this: incompatibility is the grounds for marriage. <laughs> well, well, Incompatibility is the grounds for marriage. A lot of people think, "Oh, I'm we're incompatible. We should go to the divorce lawyers." <clears throat> no, that means you're perfect for each other. That now you have a mission. Every couple feels incompatible after a while, and your mission is to learn to get curious about your partner and why it is the way they are. Why it is they do the things they do, get curious and learn from them, and they get curious about you. And that's where Harville is so wise. I'm a great dialogue partner, but he'll put it into a a succinct theory. He knows how to keep the flow that he talks about, which is the the infinity symbol, but also the particle wave duality, and also hot and cold, up and down. In and out, fast and slow. These are sort of opposites that learn to flow together in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, in fact, we call this um, uh, the wavicle, uh, the particle wave dualities, the wavicle. The wavicle. And, um, and, and that infinity symbol is, is that, that this is the way it goes. And is this, it's, uh, the wavicle is moving back and forth where both sort of in the wave modality, but if we interrupt this with negative energy input, this oscillation will stop, and Helen will then circle as a particle. I will circle as a particle, and now we are, uh, this space between is ruptured. It's not actually gone away, but our awareness has now shifted from the flow to the self. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, two two isolated circles, as if the circles are united in that flow. Yes, the yes. circles. Yeah, right. And when they become isolated, now yeah. we have the problem that uh, couples bring to you and Helen and me. Like we are here, and we can't get this going again. But they know that this is reality. This is nature. This is natural. This is. Uh, the, the 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 true structure of of um, experience is the flow, and when the uh, negativity triggers the anxiety, uh, I put Helen down. She's going to rupture that flow, and we're not going to get it. And, and if we don't get it back going again, we're going to have to go to a therapist and we say to them, "We can't get the flow going again." They, that's not what they say. They come right. in. Saying, you won't talk to me. 
or I don't want to, we haven't had a good conversation or we haven't had sex or they don't love me anymore. (laughs) I don't love me anymore. So they don't appreciate all the things I do. (laughs) We're in the, we're in the prison of our defenses. Yeah. What's fascinating with couples is that they try to get out of that. Uh, and the more they try to get out of it, the more they get into it because they criticize each other. Say, you know, you're shut up down over there and you're talking too much or you don't make an approach, but you're making too much of an approach. So whatever they do to try to get the other person to release the defense increases the hold on the defense. And so after a while, the smart couples go to you or to us or somebody and say, uh, can you help us with this? Um, and that's all they're asking is can we help them go back to the flow? Yeah, 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 yeah. And we know that we have to have them restore safety in the relationship before they will release the defense and go into the flow again. So, and so Harville, I want to, to jump on a phrase you had used. Uh, you know, as you're talking about this, you talk about being in the prison of their defenses. Yes. And so, uh, visually, you know, the prison of their defenses is like these two cycles, the two circles that are isolated and don't communicate. Right. And you're talking about restoring the safety so that actually there is the possibility of opening up yes. and restoring the flow in which the two circles communicate and it yes. can be restored. So visually, it feels like a very, very strong metaphor for what happens under threat is, you know, retrenching from the connection to two separate circles and safety to come back to facilitate yes. the opening and connection. Yes. And, and, and so the, the, um, the question we spent a long time uh, doing was how do you, how do you get that safety? How do you get the safety back? Because until you get the safety back, you can't solve any problems because I'll have problems about sex or what decisions we made. And they're all, you know, uh, uh, we need to solve these problems, but you can't as long as you're defended. First, you have to move to safety so that there's the openness again and the energy starts flowing. And then we found the problems sort of dissolve themselves because the biggest problem is the isolation of the defense. Mm-hmm. And so what we discovered, um, and Helen, in fact, discovered this in 19, uh, sort of inadvertently in 1977, uh, which was the year we met. Uh, we were, uh, we were very intense, uh, people. And uh, back in those days, we were also pretty unconscious, uh, even though we were both in psychology and, you know, thought we were advanced human beings. Um, but we were having a knockdown, <laughs> drag out battle in her living room while we were dating. This was the end of an evening. And Helen said, um, stop. One of us talk and the other one listen. You know, it was still this, but at least uh, we stopped. And then one of them started talking and the other one started listening. And we found it regulated us. Uh, I still remember that the intensity went away with the fact that I had to listen to Helen without interrupting her. And then she had to listen to me without interrupting me. And uh, I was in clinical practice at the time with couples and realized that we had just enacted something that happens in the therapy session, which I had not 
at that time, now 40, that would be 45 years ago, uh, had not um, done, which was to get couples to talk to each other instead of talk to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I went to the clinic and took this uh, thing that Helen had introduced and then insisted that the couples do that um, and noticed that it regulated them. If one talked without interruption and the other one talked without interruption. But we also noticed that uh, we didn't get very far. So I began to uh, do an inquiry to, in, in this case, I remember particularly it was, it was the woman um, who finally her husband listened to her without interrupting her. He had never done that before. So, so I said, and she said, Oh, that's the first time. That's really wonderful. I said, well, what else do you need from him now? And she said, oh, I want him to tell me back what I said. Uh, and so that was, and at that time, I didn't know she just had asked for a mirror. But later on, we labeled that. You need to mirror it back. And he said, uh, uh, okay, I can do that. Um, so, uh, so, so he started mirroring her back, but he got it all wrong. So she said, let me tell you again what I said. And so he said, okay. Um, and so then he got it right. He mirrored her accurately. And she decompensated into tears. And then I, I had not seen that before. I'd seen it was more cognitive problem solving, conflict resolution, and all that. This was 45 years ago before when therapy was pretty much a cognitive process for couples. Or it was a psychodynamic process. We treated each other like, uh, psychoanalytic clients and did this, uh, you know, uh, exploration of dreams and the unconscious. Well, I'm borderline narcissist. Yeah, no, that's sort of labeled stuff. with diagnosis. So uh, I kept asking her, to, and so she, 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 he cried. She cried when she got through. I said, "Well, what else? Is there something else you want from him?" And she said, "Yes, I would like him to tell me I make sense." Mm. And he said to her, well, I can't do that because you don't make sense. Mm. And so we talked about that a little bit. And finally, uh, I asked her, what would him saying making sense do for you? And she says, well, you don't have to agree with me. You have to see me. And when you see me, you see that I don't think like you do. I have different thoughts. And so finally he said, well, if I don't have to agree with you, then I can validate. I can, I can say you make sense, which was the introduction of validation. And In I, words, could, I can see the sense you're making. I can see the sense you're making and I can disagree with it, but I can't say that you're crazy or that you don't make sense. You make sense and I make sense. So now we're holding two senses right, uh, right. with each other. Yes. Um, yes. So and, and as you point out, Helen, then the, the flow is, is again. It's separate, but connected. It's now beginning. And I could notice that their bodies neurophysiologically were changing. You know, he was breathing deeper and this jaw that he had had kind of dropped and the cheekbones had gone down and she was relaxing. So I asked her, is there anything else that you want from him? And she said, well, can you tell me what you imagine I'm feeling with what I'm thinking? She was asking for empathy. So now this took way more than one session to work all this through. But this evolved to a three-step process. 
in which when you're when you're into the polarities that you speak and I mirror and then uh, you speak and I mirror and then I check am I getting it and she says well some of it what well, can you tell me what I miss and send the rest and mirror it and then you say uh, so yeah you got it and then you say well is there more about that and we found that that shift into curiosity at that point, instead of shifting to the other person talking, because usually it's, okay, it's my turn now. But if you can hold the person in the next step of curiosity, is there more about that, that this person over here now goes into the implicit? That is, they go into spaces, and the initial statements will be symbolic. They've already had these thoughts. But as he mirrors the is there more, that she or he drops into the unlanguaged affect, the unlanguaged sense. They go down into the what we're now calling the third brain, into the gut, into the sensory piece, and begin to put language to, it's like, like Eugene Genlin's focusing, putting symbols to the unsymbolized experiencing becomes symbolization and they start going up you mirror that and that activates more of the unlanguaged the unsymbolized and now this couple really goes deep because they go into spaces they have never put into words before and this partner is listening to symbols that they have never heard this person say before mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. So, and so George what... does the same thing, and so you. So what happens is safety is reestablished. Mm-hmm. When it's reestablished, the flow starts again. But now it goes deeper because there's no judgment going on, mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. negativity. There's accepting of each other's reality. Now you don't do that in one session, but over time that becomes the new reality. Yeah. Yeah. And so what you very nicely described is that that process of listening, mirroring, validating is not uh, some kind of a neutral, abstract, uh, following the step to get a check mark, but yeah. it's actually an entry point into a process of awakening a sense of curiosity about the other and about the space between and a capacity for actually paying attention to what happens implicitly in the space between and to be jointly engaged in that exploration, uh, taking turns and naming it. Um, And uh, one of the issues in our marriage um, that I learned about one day really helped me I was so shocked that when we were married, Harville didn't think I was the greatest person on the planet because I was so devoted to him and I wanted to help him prove him and help him be the best. And I was going to do all these wonderful things to help him with his work that he wanted to and do. And you did. World. Look what I became. <laughs> but you were very, very unhappy with me treating you that way. He was miserable in our relationship. And I'd already been divorced once and to a different businessman. Here was my dream, a therapist, because I was in training to become a therapist. And what I learned was all my good 
analysis of Harville and what he needed to do to improve himself, that wasn't what Harville was wanting from me. He was wanting me not to know him, but to not know him and to be um, beside him and ask him how he was feeling each day and to be someone he could talk to. And he could tell me um, what he was struggling with. And my shift from no, no, trying to know Harville <clears throat> to recognizing the importance of not knowing him was absolutely transformational to a flow happening. Yeah. Because uh, as long as I was going to, I was just going to really master knowing him well. Right, um, right, right, right. So that's a... That's knowing a, what he the, needed before he knew it. <laughs> before he could even ask for it, I knew what he needed. Right. And that eradicates another person. Yeah. You yeah. you decimate another person when you think you know them. And there's a whole state be- between... Yeah. And that's Rumi. The- Rumi said the state between... There's a field beyond right or wrong, and I'll meet you there yeah. in the meeting. Right. The yeah. felt experiencing. Right, right. So so you go to couples therapy to learn to not know your partner. Yeah. Yes, right. And to wonder who they yeah. are. Isn't, isn't that fascinating? That and, um, the paradox yeah. is in that the transformation occurs when you release all that you thought you knew. Yes. Because you know you made it all up. And it's called a symbiotic consciousness. Yeah. Release that and go into differentiation. And now you can connect. It's like it, it, it's nothing linear at all about that, but it's a very complicated, uh, circular, almost paradoxical process. Um, brain science today, certain uh, top neuroscientists say that, quote, tolerating ambiguity is a sign of brain health. It's the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex of the brain, and you have to be pretty neurally integrated to to function from this side of um, a brain. That this is this is um, where people go when they meditate. They stop the monkey mind and they move into an um, and they they begin to connect to their high, higher selves, and um, and that whole sentence. Um, structure in dialogue, you mirror someone, you say, did I get it? And then when you say, is there more, you're asking for that person to tell you more that they haven't said yet. You're wondering, is there more? You're wondering if there's something even deeper than they have already said. More, any more, any more vulnerability that Mm -hmm. they'd like to share because you're here to listen to them and not edit them or tell them they don't see it right or you see it differently, but spending some time wondering about your partner. Yeah. And you think that wonder too is that moving into that felt experiencing. Yeah. This is the other major thing among others that Helen uh, brought into this uh, system, which is when you wonder about your partner, they become creatures of wonder. Uh, and if you judge them, they become despicable because <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. they don't they don't match your interior fantasy of them. But when you release that and go into curiosity and wonder about them, then they you you peel back all of those predications that you've been living in, 
and ultimately they appear in their own pristine reality. And they're creatures of wonder. And now you get to live with that person rather than with this other person over here yes. that you had as a fiction of your imagination. Yeah. So, 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 yeah, that, that, that in a way ties back to how we started this conversation about paying attention to the space between that yes. is apparently empty and noticing its richness. And um, what we're talking about is a sense of being conscious that there is a more and uh, keeping focused on looking for that more mm-hmm. uh, instead of reducing it to what we think we know and yes. which is, a, you know, essentially a cycle of impoverishment, as you mentioned, Marville, because then, you know, you're always going to fall short of some expectation. But to be focused on the richness of the more and to keep inviting it. Yes, right. And thank you for mirroring that back. I've, I've gotten two sort of underlines out of this conversation with what we're doing. One is that one of the purposes of going into therapy is to not know your partner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's, I think it's, that's a, that, you can market that statement, not knowing your partner. And the other one is to live, uh, in the, in the arena of the more, Mm -hmm. that there is a more and to, uh, be looking for that, um, is, uh, is another part of the, of the space between. Yes. That, that this now is safe here. And curiosity is the mechanism of the exchange. And when that's going on, you'll continually evolve in each other's presence. And mm-hmm. but negativity will shut it all down. And then you'll go into protecting yourself from each other. And you have to then go back and create the safety so that the energy can flow again. And we, we think, and then this is way beyond our knowledge base, but I've been, um, been fascinated for years, and so is Helen. In fact, years ago we read, um, uh, what was the name? I always get his name wrong. Anyway, the the physicist Friedrich Capra, um, and I forgot the title of his book. Anyway, years and years ago. Um, but the what? Dao what physics? Yeah, the Dao physics. Dao physics. Dao physics. Um, I find my secretary. At, uh, work, moves more slowly now to my filing cabinet than, than, than she used to. So it takes a while sometimes to get the, get the title. But I recognize it when I hear it. Um, but we, uh. Um, yeah, we were both reading that when we were dating. And, and, <laughs> and, we, and we haven't been really intentional about bringing quantum, uh, into, uh, Imago. Uh, although we've been aware that every time we get a little clearer about what quantum is, that Imago is doing it. But, um, but we hadn't quite, uh, integrated the, uh, quantum field, although we knew we were no longer in, uh, in Newtonian physics, uh, where things are all separate and isolated and their interactions are causal and predictable. We knew we were in something else. But as we got more and more aware of the quantum uh, mechanics, and especially of quantum field theory, we were aware that Imago was, intu- we were intuitively doing, relating to that. And so some of the things we learned from there was like, oh, okay. So the point of what I'm saying is we now operate out of the idea that this space between is a, is a, 
it arises that the quantum field that we are in the quantum field and what we put into the field uh, is a perturbation in the field that determines what becomes subjective. So you want to be really careful because the quantum field, if we understand it right, magnifies whatever energy you put into it. And if you put negative energy into the quantum field, it will magnify the negative energy. And if you, that's why you should never uh, say, I'm going to have a bad day today because the quantum field will then give you a bad day because that's almost the instruction to the field mm-hmm, mm-hmm. energy. So you want to have a different energy. And so as we sit with couples, we want to really be clear with them. Uh, we don't go into all this stuff about quantum, but really clear that what they put into this space is, um, is connecting, is respectful, is safe, uh, is curiosity, or, or to put it as a positive energy. Because we know when they put the positive energy into the field, they'll experience a subjective uh, um, impact of that. And if they put negative energy, it'll trigger the neurochemistry, and they'll then activate cortisol and adrenaline rather than endorphins and dopamine. So it's a, it becomes from so from the cosmos all the way down to neurochemistry uh, that this field regulates the body as well as it regulates the mind and the emotions. And it's sort of a fascinating thing to think about how your uh, attitude toward each other each day is magnified by the quantum field. And so Helen and I practice uh, really, uh, and we've gone recently putting as much as possible only positive energy into the field. So instead of talking to each other about how bad I feel today, we talk to each other, and Helen is better at it than I am, about what a wonderful world we live in. And you can just feel that. It's a, it's a, it becomes a, a sensory experience because the body is also the quantum field. It's doing the same thing here as it's doing here. It's just doing it in this form. Uh, am I making sense? So what I'm hearing, we're, I'm hearing about uh, your, your uh, ex- explaining it is a sense that actually uh, instead of just telling people, say, be positive, you're explaining a sense of what interaction happens with the quantum field and how you can then experience that interaction or the effects of this interaction in your felt experience. Yes. But in essence, you know, uh, what you're instructing people is to pay attention to, to be attuned to be attuned. What happens so that, uh, in a way, uh, as you're attuned, you're going to keep noticing that putting positive energy out is going to feel good. Yes. And so that sense of, you know, noticing it is obviously going to help you do more of it. That's right. And so we're I, talking about the attunement in a way more than just by the way, do it by rote. Yes. Because, uh, I, what I'm getting from it more is really the sense of the attunement to that flow. Yeah, right. And how that attunement is actually going to help you do what feels right. And the structure of the dialogue conversation helps with the attunement. Right. Because it moves you into the prefrontal cortex away from your amygdala so that you can actually stay in that attunement and then you feel something in the amygdala, which is that it relaxed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, your body sensation uh, becomes uh, 
and less tense. So, so again, I'm noticing as you're doing this, you were pointing to the prefrontal cortex, and you were pointing to the amygdala. So the, the, the pointing illustrates that these are, you know, two circuits, and that, uh, right. you know, what I'm getting from it is to say, okay, so, you know, if you think of it in terms of circuits, if you activate, if you engage in a given circuit, then you're going to be in the flow of that circuit, and you're going to experience what it does. And by activating this circuit, you're going to deactivate this one. That's right. Uh, And so, therefore, there's a logic to that kind of behavior, because it's really about choosing which current you want to be in, like a bird that's flowing. Uh, You choose which current you're going to be carried by. And which neurochemicals you want flowing throughout your body. If it's down here, I think Harville talks too much, (laughs) and I don't like what he has to say, and and then he takes all the emotional oxygen. I think I'm dying in this relationship. So, like cortisol, um, the the neurochemicals of fear and anger. But Mm -hmm. if I wonder why Harville is the way he is, and get, and begin to ask him questions about why does he like to talk the way he does and can he tell me about that? And I listen and I learn and this acetylcholine, norepinephrine, dopamine, a whole other set of neurochemicals that are attuned, uh, they're akin to what the Dalai Lama and his practitioners use when they go on spiritual mm-hmm. uh, practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that they, it's, um, you know, it's how do you want your, your own body to feel mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As, you're, as you're processing your experience of being with your partner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Helen, in some way, what you're talking about is self-medication in a good sense, <laughs> you know, because you just notice where you tap the good chemicals yeah. versus the noxious ones. Yeah. yeah. You can yeah. choose. We tell couples yeah. to engage. You should yeah. choose what you want your partner to remember about you mm-hmm. and then create that memory. Um, you should that, choose what you want your partner to remember about you and then create, create that memory. That memory. Um, and we find that's really challenging because usually they're yelling about their partner and that's what the partner's going to remember. So you want to remember that and all that cortisol cortisol and adrenaline or do you want to your partner to remember your soft eyes and the tone of your voice do you want them to see your body relaxed and hear uh, kind words and see you as a person of uh, that's just safe to be around then you have to be that person mm-hmm. and really disarms the defensive mechanism because now they know they have the power to create the reality they want yeah yeah and they, listen, I want to give you a compliment. <laughs> I, and, and, and that is the feedback, the mirroring back, the saying back to us, I've learned more about our system than I knew before. <laughs> <laughs> and have you felt that? The, the emphasis has been really nice. It's like, oh, yeah, I think that's what I mean. <laughs> and it's like we've been saying it, but you underlined it like, like with um, – um, with the, with the, uh, I'm now losing the word, um, with the curiosity. Anyway, thank you for that, for thank your you. very yeah. precise. And, and then the one circuit, 
when you go to this circuit, you deactivate this circuit. Mm-hmm. And not put that together before. I know you can't go to both at the same time, mm-hmm. but it was never go here. It'll deactivate this. And if you want to have feelings, move away back to here and away from here because you can't feel up here. This is, right. there's no affect up there. There's just processing. So the feeling is back here. You got to go back there for the affect. And, I, and, and I know we're near our closing, but, um, well, we do have to go. Uh, one of the, um, Exciting things uh, I read one day in reading about the brain was the neuro circuit can't feel anxiety and humor at the same time. You mm-hmm. can't laugh and be anxious at the same time. So uh, Harville were what Harville and I were what I always called fun impaired. Like we did not know how to have fun. I grew up not having. If someone else was funny, I would respond. I didn't know how to do that by myself. He worked so hard all of his life. Sharecropper son, South Georgia. Father kicked in the head by the mule when he was two. His mother died when he was five. He was orphaned. Older family adopted him and passed him around. And I mean, hard, hard life. Um, <clears throat> so we love, our, like our, our favorite pastime is, was critiquing theory of other psychologists or theorists and feeling like we were better than them. And uh, we were good at that. And we loved reading and analyzing and critique, but we did not know how to have fun. So uh, to transform our relationship and make it even better, one day we decided to bring laughter into our relationship. So every night before going to bed, we got Groucho Marx glasses <laughs> and we put them on and we got joke books and we told each other jokes. And I mean, we, we realized that, um, <clears throat> we needed to practice having fun. <clears throat> and we accidentally found, oh, excuse me, <clears throat> that the word silly and holy have a similar etymology, the same etymology. Yeah. 12th century word called soli, S-O-E-L-L-Y. And it was a, combination of holy and pious, but they begin to separate. <clears throat> and and holy began to separate. <clears throat> and that's what you did at church. You acted holy and that meant serious. And silly meant something degenerative. Like yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. But at its at you know it before the thirteenth century, there was a word that described the ecstatic state of joy. Uh, in, in reverence. And when two people feel that reverence of, for each other in their relationship, that's, that's about, uh, the capacity for joy and laughter and wonder. And some couples, if you're like Harville and me, need to practice laughter. You have to practice <laughs> it to experience humor. You know, it just occurs to me that Dionysius and the word solely went through the same fate. I didn't see that before. Mm. Dionysus, you know, was the god of the dance, the god mm-hmm. of life. And when the Rome took over, they made him the god of debauchery, called Bacchus, and de- devalued that sense of aliveness. And, and what Helen and I are trying to bring back in our work is the sensation of full aliveness, and that it doesn't come from inside. It comes from, it's triggered by the quality of the space between. Yeah, but but essentially, if you think of it, the word silly 
is a judgmental world. Yes. So it's a word that comes from seeing from the outside and criticizing that aliveness. And so yes. what I'm hearing is with that concept of silly and holy and holy and the soli, uh, you really want to get to the experience of aliveness from yes. inside as opposed yes. to judging that aliveness as silly. Yes, right. And cultures do that, like the Greco-Roman cultures devalue the liveness mm-hmm. and replace it with order. And that was around, you know, for a long time. Um, and, and, and so I hadn't seen before that the fate of Dionysus and the word solely that went through the same thing, uh, right. criticizing the life force. So you had to go become cognitive. Or muscles, it was brain and muscles, and tenderness and affect and joy and excitement and full aliveness. Because people who are fully alive are dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, they they don't like boundaries much. They don't like regulation much. But if you leave them alone, they'll be great citizens. <laughs> but they, right. don't, they don't like verticality. They like uh, they like horizontality a lot better. Right, so, right. And, and that's where yeah. That's the flow again. That's yeah. the flow. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website relationalimplicit.com.